We're going to have the, the last session on scapegoat theory. Nine sessions. How about that? Hallelujah. Um, next week, I'm pleased to announce we're starting a new series. It's going to be on forgiveness, the fourfold path of forgiveness. And if you'd like a book to read, because forgiveness is a process for most of us. And so if you're processing forgiveness of some significant issue in your life or relationship, I highly recommend this book, The Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu and Info Tutu. Uh, he was the one who, um, you know, led the uh, uh, end of apartheid in, in South Africa and led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so he knows of what he speaks. Uh, it's called The Fourfold Path of Healing Ourselves and Our World. So I'm going to, actually, I'll leave that up here for you to take a look at if you'd, if you'd like. It's my copy, so don't take it, but if you want to order it from Amazon or whatever um, in anticipation of that four-part series starting next Sunday, that would be great. And I also, I brought some uh, posters that we have for the church. If anyone is, works at uh, is at the University of Michigan or Eastern or Washington Community College or any place where they have places to post, uh, you know, community organization things, feel free to take a poster or two and, and post it for us. It's, uh, we don't have any advertising money to speak of. This is one of our ways of getting the news out about our new church. So, so um, as you read in the Gospels, you notice that Jesus often asked people who were steeped in scripture, and many of the people he interacted with were steeped in the, uh, the scripture and the tradition of, of Israel, had kind of a classic opening question for them when he engaged in a dialogue. And the question is, tell me, how do you read it? He'd refer to a, a text in scripture and they'd say, tell me, how do you read it? This is a very important question because it, it implies that Jesus fully understood that we use many different lenses to read scripture. It's, it's not just there and we get it, we, we interpret scripture, which means we use lenses to read scripture. And his concern wasn't so much that we read scripture or not, but which lens do we use when we engage scripture? That's what interests him. Do we read scripture, for example, to gain or keep power over people or to love as Jesus loves? So we've been spending this uh, nine full weeks on on Rene Girard's scapegoat theory because it's a powerful lens. Um, I think it's for reading scripture, and I think it's a lens generated by scripture itself, and it's also a very Jesus-centered lens. So it's, uh, it's become my favorite lens for reading the Bible. Uh, and today I want to use this lens to understand uh, the meaning of, of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul, who wrote about a third of the New Testament, the letters of Paul to the new churches. Uh, of course, I need to quickly review scapegoat theory for us. If you haven't been here or you, you know, haven't caught it yet, scapegoat theory is like a prism lens with five different aspects, imitation, desire, rivalry, contagious violence, and scapegoating. So we're imitative creatures. We even imitate the desires uh, unconsciously of others, which sets us up for especially intense rivalries. And when a community or group enters a period of crisis, imitative 
of rivalry fuels contagious violence and imitation fuels violence that runs through a community or a crowd. And this uh, dynamic triggers a very ancient mechanism called the scapegoat mechanism. This is when a group channels its many conflicts on a single individual or on a few and their exclusion or isolation or stigmatization uh, restores the harmony to the many until the next crisis and then the pattern repeats and this is probably something you've noticed in family systems and church systems certainly in society in the classroom in the workplace all over the place um, the Hebrew Bible uh, culminating in the New Testament departs from all the ancient myths because it doesn't go along with the guilt of the victims as the ancient myths did Instead, it actually sides with the victims and over a long period of time is responsible for unmasking the scapegoat mechanism. So today, we're all aware that there is such a thing that takes place in society. You know, many, many uh, years ago, this wasn't even understood by the ancients and by the people in the uh, Middle Ages, for example. So we said uh, that there are two models of Christian conversion in the New Testament that are highlighted, that Peter and Paul, and we took a couple of looks to, weeks to look at uh, Peter's conversion in light of this, and these are two very different, um, two very different people, Peter and Paul, very different personalities. Their stories, their conversion stories on the surface are very different, and yet they two, shared two important features that are very telling about what Christian conversion actually is. The first feature they share in common is that both Peter and Paul were part of a scapegoating mob, but through an encounter with Jesus that was personal and intimate, they left, they separated themselves from the scapegoating mob. And then second, the second feature for both these men's conversion is a powerful moment of intimacy with Jesus when their own participation in the scapegoating mob was unmasked. Both of them were unaware of their participation until this moment and this moment was a, a kind of a pivot point for their conversion. So we read in, in Peter, in Peter's um, lowest moment in John chapter 18, just after Jesus was arrested and the passion was beginning in full. He, remember, he's standing around the charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus is nearby being interrogated after his arrest and around that charcoal fire three times, Peter denies knowing Jesus uh, to what? Avoid losing his place around the fire uh, like we are prone to do, right? standing by rather than standing up for victims to keep our standing in our group. This is the dynamic. So here's a crucial detail in Luke's gospel. So there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We first read about Peter in, in, um, in John. We're going to get to Paul, don't worry, when I'm setting it up. Here's a crucial detail in Luke's gospel just after the third denial of Peter in that same scene around the fire. The Lord, remember who was nearby being interrogated by the high priest, the Lord turned to Peter and looked straight at Peter and Peter remembered 
the Lord's words. Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He had said that earlier in the day. And Peter went out and cried uncontrollably. For Peter, he was totally unconscious of being caught up in the scapegoating mob. It took the look from Jesus for it to dawn on him. Oh, shamanga. I'm, I've been sucked into something. I was totally unaware. What have I done? I'm on the wrong side of my Lord. I'm on the wrong side of history. So the fascinating thing is that this is only in Luke's account, this little detail, the look, because it actually corresponds to a similar moment in the conversion of Saul, we know as Paul, which is in the book of Acts, which is written also by Luke. So Luke-Acts, sometimes it's called the Gospel of Luke and the, and the uh, book of Acts. Uh, the story of the expansion of the church after the death and rising of Jesus, both written by the same person, Luke, traveling companion to Paul. So let me set this up, Saul's conversion. We're going to be looking at this moment in particular, but to appreciate certain moments, you have to know what goes into it. So let me just tell you the story in the book of Acts. We're, we're basically, after Jesus' ascension, the book of Acts opens with the risen Jesus ascending. I guess a, a, a physicist might say he entered a parallel dimension. Uh, and then the gospel after this begins to spread, first among and from the population of Jerusalem Jews whose main language is Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic is related to uh, Hebrew. Because of their ties, these early followers of Jesus, because of their ties to Jesus, they're naturally vulnerable to the scapegoating mob. Um, and the apostles in the early chapters actually have some close calls, uh, but a powerful leader in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council named Gamaliel, uh, Gamaliel intervenes and they escape. So it's like the mob forms around them. They're, it almost does its job, but Gamaliel stands up, speaks on their behalf, and, and the mob disperses, and they're okay. Um, probably because the very first disciples are native speakers. They speak Aramaic as their first language. They had more connections with powerful people in Jerusalem, and it paid off. Uh, we know that the Apostle John, one of the early followers of Jesus, was known, for example, to, uh, to the household of the high priest. He had priestly connections. He was connected to the power brokers in Jerusalem. So a little bit later in Acts, after this, close call, the action shifts to the Greek-speaking Jews living in Jerusalem. So there were two basic population groups, the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews. And the Greek-speaking Jews, for various reasons, are probably more vulnerable to being scapegoated because their native tongue is Greek. It's a foreign language to Jerusalem, not Aramaic. So it's no accident, actually, that the, a Greek-speaking disciple of Jesus becomes the first scapegoat, the first martyr in the book of Acts, and that figure is Stephen, who plays prominently in the, um, in the conversion of Saul, become Paul. So we know from scapegoat theory that the precursor to scapegoating is a crisis marked by intensifying rivalries fueled by imitation, right? Uh, and we have that. We have signals of that throughout these chapters of Acts. The non-Messianic Jewish leaders are in rivalry with the Messianic Jewish leaders, the early followers of Jesus. 
and the new forming church organized around Jesus is racked, we learn, by intensifying rivalries within its own ranks between its Aramaic-speaking members and its Greek-speaking members, sometimes called the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. Remember, the first apostles were native speakers, uh, and they step in when they see signs of this rivalry between these two groups, and to quell the rivalry, they're good leaders, they're trying to quell the rivalry, they insist that the Greek-speaking group select seven leaders to, to participate in the leadership of the church, and these leaders, in fact, all have Greek names, including Stephen. Now, it says at this point that Stephen stood out among this group due to his healing gift. And we'll think, we think, well, that's great. We like to stand out. Who doesn't like to stand out from the crowd? But if you understand scapegoat theory, you realize this is not such a good thing. Standing out from the crowd makes you a target for scapegoating. And this is a hint in, the, in the Luke's account that a, a scapegoating mob is forming. So the ruling council, uh, which had, remember, been stymied in its earlier efforts to scapegoat the native-speaking followers of Jesus, now targets Stephen from the Greek-speaking faction. So Stephen is hauled before them, the ruling council, when the local synagogue that he's part of, the synagogue of the freedmen, which is the Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem, goes into uh, crisis mode, and, and they start to turn on Stephen. The synagogue uh, uh, members do, because Stephen is having an impact. Uh, interestingly, Saul of Tarsus, he, Saul came from Tarsus, a Greek-speaking region, is likely part of this synagogue. He may have been behind the scenes in this dispute with Stephen that sent him off to the ruling council. Um, now, Stephen, at this point, though, has no powerful protector like Gamaliel among the ruling council to stand up and to stop the, the scapegoating dynamic. And, and we see, at this stage, the early signs of a scapegoating mob forming, forming among the, the ruling council. Stephen, at this point, does something very bold. He stands up. Don't stand up in a crowd when the crowd, you know, like hide, you know, like try to slink away. I think I need to use the restroom. Uh, but Stephen stands up, he addresses the ruling council, and in this speech, which is just an amazing speech, he, uh, his speech features Joseph, how Joseph, uh, from, from one of the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, who became Israel. Jake, Jacob was scapegoated by his brothers, but God was with Joseph. We talked about Joseph earlier, Emily did. And how Moses, and he, he focuses on how Moses was expelled by his Jewish compatriots in Egypt kind of an often forgotten part of Moses' story and how actually is really the same to Jesus, which then causes the Sanhedrin, it's really fascinating. They say they stared at him and they ground their teeth and there's a kind of imitative anger that splashes through the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and, and against all their rituals and all their traditions, you know, they're like the court where there's, you're supposed to follow procedure. They just take Stephen and they cast him out where there's a crowd forming. And that's really bad news for Stephen. Um, that's when he's, 
He's the first Christian martyr. A, a ring forms around him. They start throwing stones, and that's the end, the classic scapegoating um, thing that goes back to the most ancient times. Following the lead of Jesus, interestingly, Stephen's last words echo the last words of Jesus. Father, don't hold this sin against them. Reminding us of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the case with all scapegoaters. They don't know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing when we're participating in a scapegoating mob. Saul is present at this stoning of Stephen as probably a behind-the-scenes ringleader. All the people bring their cloaks to lay at his feet. Interesting, that term ringleader probably goes back to the earliest scapegoating mobs where they would form a ring around and someone would incite the mob to throw the first stone. That person was called the ringleader. Saul is probably the ringleader in the stoning of Stephen. And then Saul has his moment. We're back to the moment, right? Like Peter's moment. Where Jesus looks at Peter, aligned with the scapegoating mob, and in that moment in Luke's gospel, Peter's heart just breaks wide open, and it says he's reduced to uncontrollable sobbing as his own participation against all of his, all of his intentions, all of his loyalties against his love for Jesus, that this scapegoating dynamic is so powerful, he realizes, I've been sucked into it. And his scapegoating is unmasked by a look from Jesus, a moment of intimacy with Jesus. So now we have Paul's moment in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, this was the early term for the, for the church, for the Christian movement, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed round him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. Later in Acts, this, uh, Paul tells this story about three times. He tells it in uh, one of his letters, I think Galatians. Um, and in one of these tellings, we learn that this happened around noontime. So the Jews, like Muslims today, or monks in monasteries, uh, practiced what was called fixed hour prayer. They, they prayed at fixed intervals throughout the day, and these intervals were set, probably tied to the Roman um, hours. And noon was one of those times of prayer. Saul, as a good practicing Jew in his prayer, would have been probably uh, using the Psalms, which were the most content, uh, you know, uh, common content of these prayers. And the Psalms are filled with the cry of persecuted victims. 
I mean, have you ever wondered when you're reading the Psalms, there's this, this guy is just praying, I'm totally innocent and, and I'm righteous God and come to my defense. And we think, what kind of a, I do not want to be married to that guy. He's got no self-awareness, you know. <laughs> well, but this is the cry of the scapegoat. He's not saying I'm like innocent of everything in my life. I'm a perfectly righteous person. But in this case, as this group is coming to focus on me, I am innocent. Come to my defense, oh God. We actually have had a version of that in the psalm that was uh, read today. Psalm 71 had a couple of lines like that. So maybe Saul was praying one of those psalms. Anyway, something triggered a deeper experience of Jesus in the noonday prayer. And a light flashes probably inside of him, maybe outside, we don't know. And then these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So with Peter, it was a look with Saul, it was a word. When Peter saw Jesus looking at him after the third denial, he saw Jesus, think about it, in a position of extreme vulnerability, right? I mean, if you've ever been arrested and interrogated, you know what that feels like. I was arrested once for leaving... Um, not paying a ticket for my dog uh, running out and being caught by the Ann Arbor dog catcher. I didn't pay the ticket, and two of Ann Arbor's finest showed up and arrested me. And I had to go in the police car, and I had to go into the police station and sit down under a bare light bulb, I kid you not, and they were asking me questions. Now, I knew this was no big deal, but it was still extremely intimidating experience. To see someone's vulnerability like that is to see what about them? It's to see their humanity. When we see one another's vulnerability, what we're seeing is our shared humanity. That's why when someone is vulnerable to us, it can either be like, ooh, off-putting because we don't want to be vulnerable, but often we're drawn to the person because we have a powerful like bridge to our shared humanity. So it's the humanity of the scapegoated that we fail to see when we are unconsciously brought into a scapegoating mob. Everything we do, everything the group does to justify excluding them has to do with obscuring the humanity of the scapegoated community. Remember in the early civil rights movement, this would be like in the 1950s, when African-American men were beginning to organize and, and do public protests against the uh, Jim Crow laws. They carried signs saying what? I am a man. There's pictures of African-Americans all holding the same sign, I am a man. They were trying to reinforce their shared humanity with their persecutors. Now, in Peter's case, Jesus does the look when Jesus is on his way to his death. But in Paul's case, it's even more powerful because this is the risen Jesus now, having conquered death. And yet Jesus, the risen Jesus, is again revealing to Saul his, Jesus, vulnerability. Saul, Saul. We don't have the tone of voice in the words of a text, but the repetition certainly um, leads us to like a plaintive. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
I don't picture Jesus like this, Saul, Saul, you're on the wrong side of history. It's Saul, he's vulnerable. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is speaking as a victim here. He's speaking as one being injured by Saul, yet he's the risen Jesus. So you know, Saul might have said, Whatever you, what are you talking about, whoever I'm talking to? I haven't laid a hand on you. But he doesn't say that. He's too good a Jew. As a Jewish man, he was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and traditions. And he knew that Yahweh was the God who hears the cry and takes the side of the victims. Whether Abel or Joseph or Hagar or Tamar or Job. So if the people that he saw was rounding up were victims not perpetrators, then he, he just knew in a flash that he was on the wrong side of God. He was on the wrong side of redemption history. See, Saul hadn't seen the Jesus followers as victims, but as perpetrators. They were the perpetrators. He saw as protecting, you know, good, pious people from the bad people who were victimizing the good people. When, when Paul tells this story later on, he emphasizes his devotion, like his sincere devotion to the God of Israel. He was one of the good guys, protecting the good people from the bad people. He had it, as my father of blessed memory used to say, he had it exactly bass backwards. Bass backwards. <laughs> Scapegoaters are always ignorant. We, when we're scapegoating, are always ignorant of our scapegoating. It's a hidden mechanism to those who participate in it. It's telling that the model scapegoater in the New Testament was a man who used his piety, his misreading of Scripture, to victimize people he never regarded as victims, who saw himself as a victim, purging Israel of its perpetrators. You know, um, American society is extremely anxious right now. Have you noticed? Um, and one of the reasons American society is so anxious is that a large portion of white males, my demographic, see themselves as victims um, with grievances compared to other groups. Uh, actually, a majority of Americans think that racism and sexism are a thing of the past. Wow. You know, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, like, uh, are they living my life? You know, as a, as a white male, I didn't have a one in four chance of being sexually assaulted when I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, my dad got a mortgage through the GI Bill, which was set up after World War II for the vets. Of the first 67,000 mortgages given out under the GI Bill, 100 were given out to non-whites. You know, I've never been questioned by the police for no reason. The only time my car was ever pulled over to be searched was when I um, went into Canada across the Windsor Bridge and I was with an African-American friend. And they said, here, come on over here. Here's, you know, and I'm like, I'm saying to my friend, totally naive, this has never happened to me before. What's going on? They're, they're searching the car. They're doing the thing underneath. He looks at me and says, uh, Ken, this has happened to me several times. I, I know exactly the drill of what's going on. I'm like, oh, 
you're, you're black, aren't you? It's like it dawned on me. This, these two things were related. You know, my demographic, white men, we suffer because we're human beings, not because of our race and our gender. So when people who have privilege see themselves as an aggrieved victim group, that is a recipe actually for scapegoating. This is like, this should make us all alert to what's going on in our society right now. Saul's conversion, though, was triggered when the risen Jesus presented himself to Paul as a vulnerable victim in solidarity with all victims. That's a key, in solidarity with all victims. Therefore, because of that flash of insight and that intimate moment hearing Jesus, he left the scapegoating mob and he stopped accusing and started defending the victims. This is a hugely significant uh, shift in New Testament thought from accusation to defender. It actually signals Saul's transfer from the realm of Satan to the realm of the Spirit. So Christian conversion is, is understood to be like a, a, a shift of realm from the realm of the Satan to the realm of the Spirit. Now Satan simply means accuser. So all of our pictures of, you know, horns and, and movies, and the, the word just means accuser. The term describes the hidden dynamic of the scapegoating mob. It's always triggered and fueled by accusations against innocent victims thought to be guilty. Remove the power of accusation and you've undone Satan in New Testament thought. The New Testament term for the Holy Spirit, there were many terms for the Spirit, and ruach, and wind, and, and pneuma in the Greek, but the characteristic New Testament term for the Holy Spirit that emerged as Jesus was taking the rule of the scapegoat was paraclete in the Greek. It means defense counsel, maintaining the innocence of falsely accused victims. Now that, that would be a fun series, wouldn't it be, to understand the realm of Satan in this light and the realm of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we'll do that in 2017, but we're done with this series now. So, for uh, just that we'd like to take a, a minute or two of quiet reflection. I have a suggestion for how you might use that time. You're welcome to use it any way you like, of course. But um, that would to try to bring this down to an interior, personal, um, micro level. I would suggest, you know, we're, we're, we all participate in different ways. We're in a, like a scapegoating culture. To think that we're like above this or outside of this is, 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 is just so, um, so not the case. So in the first minute of our quiet time, I'd like you to just be open to identifying a group of people that you might have like secret fears about or maybe you even harbor a kind of an attitude, maybe a little bit of, you're especially on guard around this group of people, you feel uncomfortable around them, maybe it's easy for you not to give them the benefit of the doubt. And just identify that group, or let the spirit kind of <laughs> shine a little light to identify who that group might be for you. And in the next minute, I'll give you a verbal prompt for the transition. Ask the, the spirit, the paraclete,
the defense counsel. Um, you know, address the spirit in those terms, like as the defender from God, to just arrange the circumstances in your life in the next week or two um, to humanize that group for you. So that you'd, you'd have an encounter, you'd watch something on TV, or you'd hear a song or whatever, and, and that group that you have that kind of on-edge feel toward would be humanized for you, help, help you to see their vulnerability. Okay, game? Let's do this. So go ahead and let's just close your eyes, get comfortable, whatever's uh, good for you to reflect and uh, try to identify what kind of a group of people that might be in your case. Okay, now just, just own that. You don't have to confess it. You don't have to, you know, like uh, defend it. Just own it. And uh, now just ask the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, as the defense counsel revealed by Jesus as he's being scapegoated. Just ask that spirit to um, arrange your life in such a way in the next week or two that um, you'd be able to humanize, see the vulnerability of that particular group of people. It's just a request you make to the Spirit. Holy Spirit, as we get ready for communion, we are thankful to you that um, your role, um, your lordship role in our midst, and we are gathered under the um, oversight of the Holy Spirit when we gather in this way, that your role is not to accuse us even when we would be vulnerable to accusation or it would be legitimate, but your role in our midst is to uh, defend us, to speak up on our behalf. And so we relax into that awareness of God who is mercifully and incredibly for us. Amen. Amen.